Hey, everybody. Guys, Martin Shaw's on. He's also going to be at the Symbolic World Summit, where I'm going to be as the MC. Martin started West Country School of Myth. He's a teacher there. He teaches people how to tell stories. He keeps alive many oral traditions, deeply involved in the art, right, of narrative, which makes sense. Logos. And he talks about his orthodox conversion on Watar. Martin, so I've got this little podcast. People keep telling me, why don't you get Martin Shaw on? I said, well, yeah, that's, that doesn't just happen. Then it happened. Thanks for oh, coming. Good. How are you no, doing? A pleasure. Thank you, John. It is about, it's mid-afternoon in England, and it is colder than a witch's tit, as we say over here. It's, it's seriously cold. <laughs> exactly. uh, so I am staying upright with coffee. I've been writing since about six o'clock in the morning, so second sleep will be coming after this. All right, good. I won't keep you too long, although I want to. First of all, you got to, for people who are following your substack, could you just explain how you got to Shane McGowan's funeral and then... Oh. Uh, who, who are you to the Pogues? I want to know this. Oh, I was no one to the Pogues, really. I had met Shane years ago, much, much younger in a different type of life. But uh, the reality is I have a friend called Glenn Hansard, who is a hugely famous Irish musician. He, he has an Oscar. And Glenn was the musical director of Shane's funeral. He did it as a favor because of mm. his, his friendship with Victoria, Shane's wife. And Glenn and I had bonded. And I think he, in my what I do in Irish, I'm something called a Shanakai, which is a or Shanaki sometimes. Uh, it's a kind of cultural historian of place. We'd understand that as a storyteller. And they wanted a figure like that at the funeral. They wanted like a senior storyteller. It's part I of see. Irish culture and tradition. And Shane was such an incredible poet um, that I think on a low key level, that was my function. But uh, it was an extraordinary thing that I'll, I think I'll be unpacking for years. Uh, if you haven't, if you if you guys listening haven't heard Martin read it, his experience go go listen to the story find it on your substack but i was struck well i've heard i've heard you so i fell in love i i first heard you talk about your experience way back with justin Briley. he's coming on next week by the way right. to talk to us i've been listening to the european version of the awakening which i'm calling this thing that you've gone through into orthodoxy mm. i've been listening to that through justin trying to figure out what Europe is doing um, as we work in this international space. And England always seemed like a hard nut to crack. And now something's happening, right? Something's happening with spirituality and a return to something. Would you agree? Or am I yeah, romanticizing no, I, I it? No, 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 you're not romanticizing. Something is going on that I've never seen in 52 years of being alive. I've never the climate has never been like this before. There's never been, I think the debate around rationality uh, 
and uh, and irrationality. The, no one's thinking like that at the moment. I think probably lockdown cleansed the palate some degree, and people are just mm. looking for a deeper life. And amazingly, the elephant in the room is Christianity, and some people are actually starting to see the swishing tail or the uh, the hooves or even a glint in the eye and myself and Paul Kingsnorth and what Justin is doing on his show there's a number of writers and thinkers and storytellers and artists many of whom's names are not currently known are sort of emerging out of the uh, ferment of this thing that is happening it could never be choreographed it could never be strategized it could only be holy spirit you know it can only work like yeah that. yeah um since since your conversion i'm not going to have you tell the story but guys go go listen to the story i want to talk to you about storytelling but if you want to tell it you're welcome to i'm not going to ask you to but if you want to but s since that would you say you are you losing more friends or gaining more friends because here we are talking we both yeah. are converts yeah <laughs> well it's it's a, it it was initially certainly it was a, it was uh there was an experience of profound loss and uh, as, no one was angry about it, but people were just profoundly disappointed, you know, confused. And yeah. there were, there were wobbles with publishers. There were wobbles with friendships, oh. uh, relationships ended, all sorts of things went on. And so it's two, you know, John, it's two years today. I launched my Substack. It's two years today. And over Christmas, we had, I think, 76,000 people read it. Uh, and from nothing, and from minus nothing, really, when I began. So something is in the air. It, it, I don't even feel hubristic about it. I just feel filled with wonder and gratitude. But yeah, it was a tough, tough road. It seemed to a lot of people around me that I'd set fire to my own career. I was doing very well, thank you very much not as a Christian, but really on the other, you know, seen very much as a kind of pagan romantic, I suppose. However, however, over the last 18 months or so, new conversations have developed, new friendships have come, and suddenly I find myself in middle age in the most kind of thrilling waters and conversations imaginable. It's brilliant. I feel like I'm 12 again. I feel absolutely I delighted too. to be where I am. Uh, I was drawn. I, I liked what happened to me is I was living in, in Mali in West Africa and yeah. I was surrounded by Muslims and they were beautiful. Now Mali is a traditional Muslim country. And so in the nineties, what was happening to me was the rhythm of African life. And I want to talk about griots with you, the storytellers that I got to know, but the rhythm of African life, but the rhythm of Islamic life, the, the life, I wouldn't call it liturgy. We can call it liturgy. It kept drawing me. And I, you know, I was like a Jesus guy. I was raised by parents who were Episcopalian, became Orthodox later. And they always allowed, you know, for Jesus talk, but mysticism, you know, we were Anglican, we were Episcopalians. And uh, so what happened is, is I brought that back and there was like a, a smell to it, an aroma. And then I walked into an Orthodox church and I'm, wait, wait a minute. This is that, but it's not. It's with Christ, which is good because I never really turned from Christ as much as 
he was like a social narrator. You know, he was like this important social narrator about how I should live. Then I realized the depth of the mysticism in it. It reminds me of Islam. And I say that to my friends, they get irritated. They're like, wait, that's not really how it is. I'm like, actually, there's something old that they share. So are you finding the pagan stories that you love? Is there, is there a sharing in the Christianity? Because I think that irritates a lot of types of Christians, probably. Yeah, I mean, here's a statement that would irritate a lot of Christians. Uh, Christianity never never defeated paganism. It absorbed paganism. That's the reality. That's what happened is it came up. Pagans attuned to the most beautiful story. The deepest, most beautiful story wins in any pagan culture. And the Christian story is the deepest and the strangest and ironically, the wildest of all. So a lot of the bells and the smells and the things that we love in our liturgies, they were there front and center in pagan ceremonies, right down to the when we celebrate Christmas and Easter and, and other things. It, a lot of it was already in place. Now, that's not to imply for a second that Christianity is sort of ornamental over essentially something completely different. That's nonsense. But it's not as if it's not as if God didn't talk to people before A.D. You know, it's not as if he wasn't working in a myriad of ways for millions of years, millions of years before we were even wandering around. And orthodoxy, yes, and the, the divine liturgy for me, I've been saying recently, as someone that came out of the charismatic movement, it's the most incredible runway for the Holy Spirit that I've ever seen. It has all the drama that I associate with uh, charismatic experience, but it has the pathos and the weight and the soul of tradition. Uh, and that for me is when spirit meets soul, orthodoxy is the, the most effective crucible that I've ever found for it. I kissed the hem of my good fortune that I wandered into an orthodox church two years ago. We, we had the same experience. The Russians captivated me. So, you know, there's all these flavors, and I think people listening will probably know. One liturgy, many flavors. The Russian tradition was the one I walked into. What about you right now? I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm part of, a, you know, a why I'm part of a very particular strand of Russian orthodoxy where the main theologians in our tradition all in end, all ended up in Paris. They were after the Bolshevik resolution. Oh, I revolution. know these characters. Yeah, you would pack off yeah. all those, the big, the big theological hitters all created and went to the same seminary in Paris. Uh, and my tiny little church is an offshoot of that uh, diocese over in uh, over in Exeter in the West Country. So we anything really dynamic that happened in orthodoxy in the 20th century, an awful lot of it happened coming out of this uh, seminary in Paris. Well, we well, we're going to meet each other. We got to talk about, you know, we we have we're imbibing the same liturgical flavors yeah we've always done that oh that's interesting we'll have a lot to talk about we're meeting just so folks know uh for the uh, symbolic world summit martin's going to speak there on reclaiming the cosmic image what are you finding about these cats on the other side of the the atlantic are you looking forward to coming over here i'm absolutely looking forward to coming over i'm thrilled by it and 
this uh, these conversations with yourself, Jonathan Bajot and others, um, it's just great. I mean, it's just it's very healthy, and it's taking taking a form like YouTube that I usually find dehabilitating and exhausting into something that's really nourishing right. and beautiful, strange ideas get to appear in the world. So I'm very happy to be part of the conference. I'm grateful to being asked. Um, it's an exciting time. I mean, if you think about it like this, can you imagine it's a conference that on the one hand is ostensibly mythological, but then you look at actually all the main speakers and almost everybody I think is orthodox. So yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's basically Christians who are really, really interested in myth, interested in symbols, interested in depth experience. Sign me up. I'm in. I'd be going if I wasn't invited anyway. Yeah, me too. Me too. I was blessed. Uh, the thing that's happened to me with the with with Jonathan in particular, but really my priest and really any given spiritual father that you talk to in our tradition is the idea of layers, which you knew because well, I want you to get into this extreme storytelling in a second, but <laughs> I, I didn't know it. I knew it. I came as an intellectual. I came reading. And the thing that really that lit me about, that lit me on fire and got me excited in orthodoxy, besides the fact that it there's peace in the liturgy, was I finally could place the Bible at, I could never place the Bible because I was a historian. And so I didn't understand why there would be so much faith. I, I know these are humans writing this and I kept trying to, you know, footnotes. And I, I, you know, I did all that undermining of the Bible because, because, because it was presented to me as a Western document. Like, it, and I didn't, it didn't fit that way. And I wanted to know, was it like the Quran? Was it just dropped into, into, what was it? And the church helped me understand what it is. You see, and when that happened, I was like, oh, so this isn't myth. This isn't myth in the way I was taught. This is a many-layered explanation of reality. And the many-layered part, which we're going to talk about at the summit, the many-layered part, it, I found a home. Like, okay, I can understand this on different layers, and they're all true. That was hard for me. That was hard for me early. Is it? Yeah, but that's natural to you on some yes, level. Yes, it, uh, it, it's absolutely natural. It's been my bread and butter for thirty years. Um, I remember sitting with Jonathan one night when we were having pints in in Dublin, Guinness, and we would have been smoking cigars, and we agreed really mm. that myth is just the best way to talk about everything. Uh, the way I would always say it is, you know myth is a beautiful lie that tells a deeper truth you know you never get the story of the thing with the facts of the thing now on the other hand to counter that i'm one of these old-fashioned christians that regards the miracles as things that actually happened i don't turn them immediately into Me metaphors too. although they have all of that god is so clever that they can work on all these different levels. They can work as incredible right. metaphors and images and allegories. But I think a fundamental spiritual explosion went off in Galilee, and we are feeling the effects of that 2,000 years later. You only have to read Mark to feel the, the drama and the charge of what is going on. Um, so, yeah, I am used to depth experience of story, but like yourself, 
I didn't experience a lot of that in Western Christianity. I experienced a lot of intelligence. I experienced a lot mm. of um, of good thinking in sermons, but I did not encounter mystical contemplative experience. I would have seen, as I said, things like the charismatic movement. I would have seen spiritual energies at large, but it was rather hard to ground. And I didn't grow up yeah. really knowing yeah. much about saints or mystics or hermits. And strangely, I, I lived in a tent for four years. I went without any sort of phone or computer or anything like that. I gravitated instinctively towards that tradition not realizing that I was running away from something a la Christianity that just over in the East accommodated it beautifully. Yeah, that's sort of what this podcast does whenever uh, I present without a guest. We, we talk about old world and new world. And um, that's when I found you and just there's a... One of the beautiful things I found in the old world is, is I don't have to cite my sources as much as be of them. And then I'm accepted as a speaker of that narrative. And it's nice, it's nice to cite things, Martin. I, I don't have a problem with that. But what I realized is, is you are of it anyway. There's something inciting it that creates a type of hubris in that this is this is who I'm doing as opposed to this is what I am. And I, I found that in orthodoxy and I found it all over where we work in Guatemala with the Mayans. There's something old that is shared that the new and post enlightenment world or the enlightenment world does not fully understand for better or worse. You must see that as you, as you I enter do. into further into orthodoxy. Yeah. Orthodoxy is extraordinary. Last week, this enormous, unasked for parcel arrived from Mount Athos. You know, it's a thrill just to see Mount <laughs> Athos and is all that, the Greek right? writing on it. Uh, and it just had this great corpus of all the great thinkers and writers and monks primarily that have come out of Athos. And just this little note saying in Greek, you know, in Greek into English, let this be a blessing for you. You know, can you imagine? That's an emotional moment. That's an emotional moment. Why? Um, so I probably receive, I would imagine at the moment, 10 to 30 books a month from all over the world, from good Orthodox people just saying, you may want to check it, this out. You may yeah. want to check this out and what is happening. Yeah. And I'm saying, keep it coming because what will happen is in two years, I will have a significant Orthodox library in a part of the world that generally doesn't have that. And I can make it available to my students and friends. I've noticed so that the, the books so far, the books that have the real transmission and the power in them are books that are written by monastics, not theologians. You know, the theology is interesting, but the direct experiences of those uh, desert mothers and desert fathers and folks that to this day go out into the bush uh, I'm a great fan of an Irish philosopher called John Moriarty. He was a Catholic, very wayward Catholic. Uh, and he said, you know, we need to go out and dis rediscover as Christians our bush soul, our, our, our wilderness soul. And of course, um, orthodoxy has that in spades. And so 
your journey into the saints, into the Desert Fathers, this is making you happy. It's making me very happy. Um, I'm not a hair shirt kind of guy, you know. I'm, me neither. I'm not attracted neither. to that. I don't want to become an anchorite. I don't want to seal myself into a wall, you know, and just pray all of the time. Uh, that's a very particular look. And even outside of Christianity, in any religion, there's always people that are wired to do that. There's always people that are wired to do that. But for me, um, you know, we hear a lot about carrying our cross as Christians. We understand that. We hear a lot about there being narrow doorways uh, that we have to pass through and narrow paths. That's true. But at the same time, if you overemphasize that, you lose what I think Job finds at the end of the book of Job, which is what I call your wonder eye. You lose, mm. you lose the glory mm. of everything. You, glue, you lose the angels that are present. Uh, you lose yeah. the miracle of a child's face. You lose the miracle of a cormorant moving over the water. And that's a killer. And you have begun to move towards hell when you do that because yeah. you're turning yeah. your face away from the radiance of the universe, you know? So um, I'm, I'm, I, love, I love the patristic teachers. I love the desert. But I'm also a lover, you know, I'm not a kind of yeah. thinned out, life denying. Uh, I'm not pious. <laughs> I should be more pious. You know. I, I, we're similar. I find the forest of people, should I be in a, say, a, I was in New York City last week. I find that beautiful. I can go into the forest. I'm not a fan. I mean, I wouldn't, it's uh, maybe different than you. I don't embrace it. But the forest of people, I don't know. There's something, there's many stories there. And it's gorgeous to be surrounded by people, even when they're not so kind. We run a restaurant. We do these Georgian dinners. And strangers come and sit together. So 20 strangers will come, you know, and sit with and join us. And we'll toast in the Tamada tradition. I don't know if we've ever done a supra in the Georgian tradition with um, toasts. But... It's a liturgical setting. Of, it comes out of the Georgian understanding of the liturgy. Uh, it's a feast that can go four or five hours. The Tamada, which I'm one of those, presents really life through a series of moments of highest ideals. And those become a toast and an invitation to people at the table to toast back on the theme. It becomes a little bit like uh, the prayer and then the amen. And it's it's found in this this rhythm. We did it down. Uh, Jonathan was coming down there, and and Neil, and they were. We do this as a type of way to invite people into our world. And so the reason I'm bringing all this up is the people that come to our restaurant and sit there and don't know what's about to happen and still go through this with us. And then at the end of the night, the way that we share to watch a, a soul open like this I, to me it's like the wild to me it's like the wild yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah i can feel it so tell me about are you a griot in the in the so in africa i saw griots would come to the villages where i where i was and they would spend three days and tell a story over you know 30 hours this is you yeah yeah i absolutely could do that I, I, I'm doing it this weekend. Uh, I will begin on Friday coming 
the story, uh, the Epic of Parsifal. It's one of the Grail stories. And I will have got to the end of it by Sunday afternoon. And then by Monday evening, I will be on a remote island off Ireland, the Aran Islands, where I'm going on retreat. So this is my last public moment before I am subsumed back into the wild for a period of time, a winter refresher for me. So yeah, the griot, that tradition, I mean, obviously I'm, you want to be careful. I wouldn't use that word about myself because it's a praise name. You have to have, if it's given to you by others, that's fine. But uh, I wouldn't That's right. That's right. put that on me. But I am a Shanaki, you know, I am a traditional storyteller mm -hmm. and that is kept in here. One of my con mild concerns that I, I raised with Jonathan and he was concurred, which is I said, as you live in this virtual world online that I did not grow up with, do make sure that you spend more time encountering the myths than theorizing about the myths. They're not just patterns. Mm. They're not just things to be broken down and domestic, made domestic. Because when you make it domestic, when you've corralled it, it's no longer wild. It is something you can just put in your pocket like a, a Rubik cube. Myths are not like that. And no griot would walk around saying, here's just this set of tame little things that I have. Here's my tame right. little ducks. They're, they're, they're wild in their way. Um, so that would be the thing that I'm going to be talking about actually in Florida is do make sure if you're exploring Beowulf or you're exploring uh, Joseph's descent into Egypt or you're exploring Samson or you're exploring the Odyssey, do make sure you tell the story orally and, and don't even read it. Don't, don't just read it as a recital, tell it, let it live within your imagination. That's what I've, my school is 21 years old, the school of myth in Britain. We have a toasting culture that we've developed the, the banquets that we have and the, and the fine, the, you know, everybody develops really? a kind of saddlebag of elegant speech by working with me. Uh, but that's the thing that I'm I'm coming to talk about, which is don't mistake theory, don't mistake ideas for the actual encounter. The primary encounter has to be with the story first. Do you think we do that? I know I can default to that. We've been trained as rationalists in the West to do that. Is that, is that, is that right? Yeah, it is. And there's a romantic poet uh, called Friedrich Holderlin. And he says this, I quote this about once a week, gods be careful, you have become decorations in their poems. And he's really saying that it's very easy to talk about Dionysus. It's very easy to talk about Abraham. It's very easy to sort of evoke some great archaic presence, but it just, you're wearing it as an ornament. You're not, it's not actually, nothing is being transmitted. And so I came through to storytelling through a very unusual way. I, I had no interest in sort of uh, spinning a yarn or being on stage. I lived in a tent for five years. I was training as something called a wilderness rites of passage guide. And I realized the best way to talk about depth experience of any kind was through a story because when you tell it through a story you bring in an element of the third person you know it gets tedious 
to be using I statements all of the time. I, 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 I think we live in a culture, we live in a culture of disclosure. There's an addiction to disclosure. Actually, you find, I was talking to my brother about it the other day, who's a, a preacher. And we were saying how it's kind you've got to be careful with personal stories, because as soon as you tell the personal stories, everybody leans forward. And it's what they call, I call it low hanging fruit. You know, be careful. It, know yes, that. it binds a room yeah. together, but you've got to bring some content in. you've got to bring some ideas in. You've got to bring in something prophetic as well as pastoral, prophetic as well as pastoral. And that's why I found orthodoxy so attractive was because I went along to the liturgy and they, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, to be honest, the evangelical Christ that I was used to sort of encountering. Mm. And it certainly wasn't the kind of Bee Gees Jesus with the big hair. Um, it was this other dimension that was opening these little doors that took me all the way past Bethlehem to the very beginning. I felt like I came out having glimpsed the ancient of days. And that rendered me almost speechless, man. I had just nothing to say. It was nothing to do at that moment with, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild or or how I was feeling or anything. It was like looking at, you know, when you look up in the night sky and there's uncountable stars and you're just rendered speechless. It was like an encounter of God like that, but with other people around me. I'd never had that before. I had that in Georgia in the nineties and both through the orthodoxy and, and through their ancient, <clears throat> well, it's all connected through the ancient wisdom of the, of the table. Same. I used to sit there and think these guys have been doing this dinner for six hours and that was still fresh. <laughs> that was still something said that took me higher to a place that, I don't want to, I don't want to leave from this, this tradition, this supra. And then I would go to Pascha and experience Georgian Pascha, uh, you know, Orthodox. Wow. Yeah. Those, those days, those are halcyon. They, they remain in me though. Mm. I married, my wife is a convert too. This is another thing. Are you married, Martin? No, no, I'm not. I was talking to Paul Vanderclade. Do you know Paul Vanderclade? Do you know who he is? Yeah, I do. I've been on yeah. his show actually. Yeah. Paul was talking to me last week and he commented, he said, there's something not solitary, but very single about the journey that you've been on. Uh, And he said he was used to, obviously, with Western Christianity, such onus is put on, you know, children, family. I mean, I'm a a very devoted Mm -hmm. father. I have a beautiful teenage girl, but no, I'm, I'm not married. And a lot of what I've lived through simply as I said to him, and as I said it, I realized, oh, this is, I said, I've been cooked in a different kind of oven. Uh, And for some reason, Christ has decided in my 50s that that is now going to be made available, uh, you know, to to people at large, the conversation is expanding. But no, I'm not, I'm not married. I, I bring that up. Well, first, I want to say to you, I thought about you a lot from that first interview that I, you know, that, that introduced me to you, it was with Justin. And I thought he's, there's going to be loneliness there. You're going to, there's going to be a deep communion, right? You're going to need communing. And the reason I bring in my wife is 
the idea of marriage when when in it in an orthodox way is so different from an idea of marriage in the secular world that it's made me aware of communion i'm talking about sunday liturgy i'm i i approach the cup differently because i'm married. it's very it's very palpable on a sunday what's happened to me in my marriage is communicated in this moment of the cup and all those kind of connections i never saw as a as a earlier western christian i it was very linear um and and so I, I was thinking on your journey who's with you well i guess people like your priest are with you yeah and i have a here's what's gonna happen what, yeah father father Pephorius is my my spiritual father really at our little our little church little congregation in exeter and he's a great figure i'm very loved you know, I'm surrounded by love. I'm surrounded by people that that care about me to an almost embarrassing degree. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not uh, in some watching out for you. situation. You know, yeah. No, nah, I I can't imagine. I, give, interestingly, you... isn't it? It's an interesting thing. I think uh, to be in middle age, having had a child, having the joy of being a parent, but. God willing, I could live for a long time. You know, I'm only in my early 50s. I'm relatively fit. Yeah. Um, what does a loving relationship, look, a new loving relationship look like when the biological imperative of having children has calmed and you're question. there? And, and, of course, the, the perennial difficulty for, for middle-aged folks, especially if you've been alone a lot, you do take on a very particular shape. And when right. most people meet their beloveds, they're younger and more malleable. Uh, so there That's is right. an awareness in me. I feel silence has very much changed for me. Now I'm, a, uh, now I'm orthodox. I feel that I'm always in the presence of God whenever I'm alone. It's always right. full. Right. It's never empty. I don't feel... I don't feel isolation. I feel solitude, and they're not the same. So you know, were the love of were the love adventure to appear, well, that would be a wonderful thing. But I don't. It's not a. It's not a dog at my door pouring to get in. Yeah, but that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense given who you were before, who you are. Yeah, you can live in that space. I, I'm a. Yeah, again, I love what you said about I'm. And everyone leans in. I see this in my own self. I see it at the table. You know, in America, and you'll see this, and you've been here. Mm. That is the point, is to let people know who you are. It kind of is the point of any yeah. cultural moment. <laughs> at, at, at my school, I would say my students begin, usually this is the predominant emotion in them. The year begins with them saying, I want to be heard. And the year usually ends with them saying, how do I speak? So in other words, there's a kind of demolition of the Western psyche that I have to get on with, with new students, where that phenomenal sense of entitlement and urgency to be witnessed has to be sort of taken off the boil, sometimes devastatingly so, sometimes gently so. Because actually how you approach a story, how you tell a story, there's an efficacy 
connected to that. There's manners connected to that. There's approach connected to that. That's what traditional storytellers understand. That's why you had apprentice to be a bard and have 60,000 lines right. in your head before you had the audacity to claim that you were a bard or an olav, whatever the language you want. So, um, yeah, it is a move. The story takes away the little I, but it replaces it with the big we. The big we, yeah. you know. Once upon a time, a man in the middle of his life entered a deep forest. That's much better than saying, I am currently experiencing depression. There's a lot more we can do with that. The soul is interested in that. Well, the other thing uh, in the Tamada tradition in Georgia, the Tamada's toast is meant, you just gave an example exactly perfectly of what you would not do as a Tamada. You would never make the toast the eye because you've not now engaged the entire table. In the second example, everyone can understand the wood. And, and now everyone is invited to the same sense of depression, of darkness. And now everyone has an opportunity to offer back on the toast. When it's an eye conversation, the Tamada is cutting the table off. And so one of the things the Tamada is always trying to do is be the third is draw attention to the third. There's us at the table, but there's the third piece. It's the universe. It's God, right? It's it's the truth, but it's said compassionately and poetically. And I think, I mean, you're a Tamada. In fact, I got plans. I want, I want you to come to one of our tables. I'm going to see you. You watch. My world's weird this year. I'm going to be all over. I hope to run into you. Here's a quick question. We'll get toward the end because... I like to keep folks about 45 minutes to an hour. I know you're busy. So, and you've got, it's cold, but here's a question for you. Do, do, do what you can with this. Cause this is probably the most fascinating part of my experience with storytelling in, in my lifetime. And it's being open to me as an Orthodox character. Narrative and reality are connected in some way. Logos and truth. The word I don't know how to say this. I know that you and Jonathan and many others online, the Neoplatonists, how is narrative reality to? In other words, how can I know more about truth through word than I can through math or engineering study? Is there such a way that narrative tells the reality better than science per se? Well, uh, the way I would look at that question, which is it's always going to be inevitable that we're going to circle around it. In storytelling, there's something called twisted language. And it doesn't mean twisted in a dark sense. It means you don't address things directly all the time because that's bad manners. If I go for a walk where I live, I often look at something that seeks to be admired by me and I'll give it 12 secret names. I look at it from 12 secret an uh, angles. The next time your relationship hits rocky ground, keep looking at your beloved and figure out 12 praise names for them, subtle little things that you can see in them and wonderful things will happen, even if you never say it to them, even if it just exists in your prayers, it does good. So coming back to what you're saying, here's an old idea. The old idea is that your soul is not very convinced by much that you do. It can see us bragging. It can see us um, 
loathing ourselves. It can see us overstepping. But what we do know from many folk traditions and myths is that the soul is really fed by images. And when you feed it with a story, it receives it like you do a Georgian meal. You're suddenly full. A story is a blessing, not just an endorsement. You know, you're always looking. I meet young, young, young men, especially with me, are often looking to be visibly seen or noted by me. And so in some way they feel affirmed. But what they really want is not an affirmation. What they really need to experience is a blessing. And you can't give a blessing to someone um, as a sort of uh, as a platitudinal move. You have to see something really specific and wonderful in them. And that's a slight sidebar to come back to this. All I know is what I said maybe 15 minutes ago. You can't get near a story through the facts of the matter. Something intangible is present that isn't that. It's not the A to B to C. When I was 17, I had my first experience of heartbreak. Now, a mathematician, and there's nothing, God, my God, the genius of maths, you know, it's nothing. But right, a, right, a, right. a heavy rationalist could say, you have experienced a momentary, you know, loss of energy, you will feel sad, you will recover, and you will probably have another relationship. But a poet would say to me, last night, all the crows came to land on your roof. And the relief of that being acknowledged, that absolute truth that makes me temporarily magnificent in my distraughtness. That's what I found as a teenager when I read Pablo Neruda, when I read Yeats, uh, the great Sylvia Plath, some of these great poem, poets. That's what it does. It, um, there's a poet, actually, Jane Hirschfeld in America. But she wrote me an email yesterday and she said, how does myth make the invisible visible? That's the question I have to sit with today. How does myth make the invisible visible? You only have to think about that for five minutes, anybody, and you're going to, something's going to start happening. But yeah. it's the invisible in our lives that myth somehow catches like a genie in a jar and great poems and great stories are things to live by statistics are not well come to florida uh we'll have a cigar are you smoking yeah. cigars these days oh. <laughs> oh yes 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 i'll have a cigar <laughs> you know not all, you know That's you've got right. to go to something to confession with you know there's not much left yeah i was gonna say <laughs> paul kingsnorth he's been on here three times with me is he really coming buddies um yeah, yeah, he, he he was kind to recommend my Substack. He's a good dude. Paul he's also funny because he. I think, I think he thinks he's really dour. I I I always find him. He always is on the verge of making me laugh. I don't know why. He's he he he's doing incredible work to teach us about what it is that's going on, but. Yeah, it's and yeah. it's hard, but I love that guy. Love that guy. Yeah, but yeah. he and I were talking about cigars and i hope that we can we can share one and i hope people come and be a part of uh summit but but also i 
I'm, I really got to get you to a Georgia. If you ever want to go to Georgia, I'm a guy who goes. We have workers there. We have folks doing projects there. Uh, I can show you the underbelly, the wild parts. I'd love that because becoming... I, want to, I want to do a new version of an, the, the, the great Georgian myth is called the night in panther skin, the night in panther skin. Yep. And it's yep. a story that goes all the way back down into India. And I've always imagined that I was going to go to Georgia and be in that climate and eventually do a new telling. It needs a new telling. It needs a new telling of the night in panther skin. Yeah. So if we could work that out, I'm coming. Yeah. Reach out. I'll be in touch and I'll see you. I'll see you soon. And I hope all goes well for you, brother, uh, between then and now and get some, get, get some sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could have kept going. I can't, I promise people that I'm not going to talk forever. I mean, I promise them not that I won't make them talk forever, but I do talk forever. You know, as it, someone doing interviews, now I'm doing it again. Exactly what he talked about not doing. You know, in this world, I'm so thankful to be able to talk to you all. People are beautiful. Everything that we think is happening is happening, but it's below the surface. And all of us, like like princes and priests, we have to bring those things to the to the fore. We have to bring them out of this out of the underneath. That's our job. It's to bring light into the world, to let the things that are emerging. And this is what this was. It's nice to do such a thing. It's to allow light in. And we can all do it every day, no matter what. No matter what. No matter what. I'm thankful to have had Martin on. I'm thankful to be talking to you all. I'm thankful that all of you are supportive of our work. Keep being so. Lots happening this year. Symbolic World Summit, that's just one thing. We're blowing out this idea of the super table in all of its many, many dimensions, including asking many of you to become Tamadas. Get ready. This is John. This is Watar. We're doing First Things Foundation, www.first-things.org. Go check us out. You'll learn more and find out more about our podcast. Love to all of you. Nakvamdis. That's Georgian for see you later. <laughs>